Hello and welcome to End Credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm your host, Adam A. Donaldson, and joining me today will be no one in particular. We're going to um, take kind of a week off, uh, rest and relax in this last week of summer before we get back to it fully next week. Um... With, uh, with new shows for today. It's kind of a repeat, but kind of not, because it's mixing elements of several shows. So, we hope you like it. <laughs> End Credits is a local movie show for local movie fans. We are here every Wednesday at 3 p.m. to talk the latest in pop culture and review the newest movies, which this week will be, as I said, no new movie. We are um, doing the whole ultimate Steven Spielberg ranking list all in one episode so um, it was 33 films as you'll recall and uh, we, we, we put every last one of them in their proper place in their their proper context at least according to me um, will I be proven right in the long run I think so but you know you, you can never be too sure um, before we jump into that um, I just want to pause here for a sec to um, acknowledge the passing of Chadwick Boseman, 43 years old, um, just an incredible actor with an incredible filmography. And I mean, the, the lion's share of the attention is, of course, on Black Panther. He played Black Panther in four different Marvel movies um, in the last five years um so quite the commitment as as uh, on top of the the revelations that he was fighting colon cancer that whole time um pretty much you know having to work out to play black panther having to uh, you know tra- transform himself physically into different parts um Oh, while battling cancer. And then, you know, there's, of course, like, the the promotion stuff for movies on top of that. There's um, personal appearances he did. Like, he would visit children in the hospital because, of course, kids would recognize him as Black Panther. Um, Black Panther was a huge cultural um, and pop culture milestone. And so he he had a lot of work to do to promote that. Um, Just a workhorse of a man even before you add on top of that, that he was dying of colon cancer through much of that whole time. It, it just an incredible legacy he has. And not just as Black Panther, which again is, is culturally important, but also, you know, he's played Thurgood Marshall. He's played Jackie Robinson. He's played James Brown. Um, you know, all these sort of like black luminaries, um, all these people who, who, you know, to, to play one of those parts um, must feel overwhelming for just any black actor, but for one black actor to take on all those parts, plus Black Panther on top of that, you know, he was taking a lot onto himself. And um, I, I think we're going to be talking a lot about what his lasting legacy is going to be. Unfortunately, he won't be making any more movies. I'm not sure if he had anything in the proverbial can of course he was in the five bloods which came out earlier this summer and he was great in that so perhaps he'll get some sort of recognition um but i mean just all around a a kind of sad uh piece of news to to hit us this past weekend so we gotta move on um 
only got the hour. And there's a whole thing about uh, Steven Spielberg we've we've had organized here. So let's get uh, let's get that started with the first part of this countdown. Um, we'll we'll cue that up and be right back. Of course. These are my babies, alright, man. Sulaco from Aliens. Dude, how are you showing off Marsh? Valley Forge from Silent Running. Oh, where's the Harkonnen dropship? That <laughs> thing is sick. Fold space like a boss. I mean, you can get from Incipio to Arrakis. Fingers! You'll have to excuse him. He gets a little nervous around pretty girls. I can fix it in 10 minutes. Yep. He's pretty great. I assume you and shoulder blades are clanned up. Oh, H? Nah. I mean, he's really good. But I don't clan. Oh. Because you're Parzival, as in the knight who found the Holy Grail by himself. What about you, Artemis, goddess of the hunt? Clans must be killing to sign you up. So I'm going to start with Ready Player One at the, the number 12 spot for this, the worst of list. Um... Mark Rylance, who has sort of become a sort of a reliable Spielberg player since Bridge of Spies, horribly miscast as the guy who invents this big, huge virtual world and dies and leaves a bunch of clues, and the person who solves the clues will be able to inherit it. Um, I just, he's completely unbelievable as this tech guru. Um, they should have had Simon Pegg do it. Simon Pegg is also in the movie, but he plays the. Uh, Mark Rylance is co-creator of the of the virtual world Oasis, but it just sorry I, I could not buy Mark Rylance in this role as sort of the uber geek VR creator of this expansive world. Having said that, S Steven Spielberg was still the entirely wrong director for this film, um, since so much of Ready Player One is about sort of deconstructing. Actually, I wouldn't even call it deconstruction, but it, it, it's it's about so much homage to Steven Spielberg's work, especially, you know, circa 1975 to about 93 when he made Jurassic Park. Um, 
Spielberg is too ingrained in the popular culture that this movie traffics in to really be able to sort of separate himself from it and, and do something that was really terribly um, interesting or, or had an appropriate commentary on um, on the book and on popular culture. But I'll, I'll just leave it at that. One thing about Ready Player One, it surplants 1941 as the worst Spielberg movie. 1941 comes on the heels of Jaws and Close Encounters, but it is completely unfocused. It is completely all over the place. It's got such great comedic talent like Tim Matheson, John Belushi, John Candy. Um, but it's just not funny. Uh, Spielberg just can't do straight-up comedy. It's it's It's... There's a whole subplot which is just sort of like completely out of touch because it's it's mostly about um, Tim Matheson's character chasing Nancy Allen around and doing everything he can to pressure her into sex. It is just awful. It is so difficult to watch now. Um, it, it just it really hits all the wrong notes. Um, casual racism with the Japanese, too. That's also a big problem in 1941. Uh, now I'm starting to think that maybe 1941 should still be on the bottom and Ready Player One should be a, the, the second worst, but I digress. Um, Twilight Zone the movie. Steven Spielberg directed one of the segments for Twilight Zone the movie. It is the worst segment uh, I don't know how the John Landis segment would have turned out if it were not for the incredibly tragic events that happened on that film set, but um, be because they did, and because that stands out so much in your mind, it it's kind of hard to p place that in context of the Twilight Zone movie, but just, you know, the Spielberg segment coming before the Joe Dante segment, which is just crazy, it's balls out crazy, and then the George Miller um, remake of the uh, Terror at 50,000 Feet, it is just, it does not stand out at all. It, it makes you almost sad for Spielberg to watch his segment in the Twilight Zone movie. Number nine, uh, The Lost World Jurassic Park. Um, it focuses on almost like the entirely wrong character. I do understand why the Goldblum character came out of that film and, and people loved him and loved the character but uh, I, I just I, he 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 isn't the main character or he isn't a main character and he he's a good sort of like counterpoint character. So it focuses on the entirely wrong character. It kind of sets the tone for what I think you know. Given the last Jurassic Park film, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, um, where it's become less about sort of the mad science of creating dinosaurs, and and these Jurassic Park films have continually just become more and more slimmed down thematically to just be about just to just basically be slasher films with dinosaurs and that starts with the lost world which is a shame because it is from spielberg the guy who made the original um number eight i have hook some people may disagree with this about being the fifth worst spielberg film i think how you digest hook has a lot to do with whether or not you were a kid when you saw hook in the theater i think standing Apart from that, it is more interesting as a um, a statement of where Spielberg was going next. He was almost saying, like, this is like me saying goodbye to childish things and childish thinking. My next, The next phase of my career is going to be more 
introspective, more in-depth, more hard, more adult. And looking at it that way, it's a bit easier to have the broader appreciation of Hook. Uh, number seven, The Terminal. A wonderful Tom Hanks performance at the center of it, but the rest of it is just such a weird kind of... What, what I think someone in a focus group somewhere assumed would be Capra-esque. Capra um, it does not work. I have no idea why Stanley Tucci, as, as sort of the, the Homeland Security agent in charge of Kennedy, would be so concerned about this poor stateless man running around his terminal. It's insane. Um, I have no idea why the, the chief security guard, Barry uh, Shabaka Henley, who, who plays the security guard, why does he go along with it? Why does he go along with this Stanley Tucci craziness? Um, the romance with Catherine Zeta-Jones was really underdeveloped, too. It, 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 everything about it just feels that little bit off. And instead, what you have is these little segments, these little episodic segments with Tom Hanks interacting with the different characters. Uh, some of it comes very close to working, but as a whole, it just doesn't work. And then at the end, you find out he's the whole reason he's in New York is to get a signature of a famous jazz musician, and and then he get, goes back to the airport to get on the plane. It's just not great. Um, anyway, the BFG is number six. Um, Spielberg made this probably 15 to 20 years too late. Um, I, I did like the relationship between Sophie and the BFG, who's played by Mark Rylance, but there's a real clash in the film because it's done in Spielberg's very down-to-earth, more realistic style. But it's very much the Spielberg trying to recapture some of that E.T.-esque lost magic. And he just can't get there. And instead, he get this bizarre hybrid model of a Spielberg movie where he's trying to um, capture that sense of child, childhood wonder um, from E.T. or from Goonies, which he, he wrote and produced. And it's just not there anymore. He sort of lost that. He's a grandpa now. He can't really um, process things through the the point of view of a child anymore. Uh, number five is always, and it's a bit weird to end the '80s, like maybe one of Spielberg's most influential decades, um, with always, um, which is a remake. Um, it, it, it's it's a romantic movie. And I don't think Spielberg is particularly well-known for romantic movies or even, like, really romance in his movies. Um, it's it's a supernatural story, too. Uh, the thing is, like, I, I have watched this movie recently, and I still kind of find it kind of forgettable. Um, which may be ironic, since it's titled Always. It does not always stick with you. Um, probably it'll go down historically in terms of, you know, trivia and... And those kind of things by um, being noted for Audrey Hepburn's final film performance. I don't know. Um, I, I think it's very well made, but I, I, at the same time, it, it's very chewy, chewing gum kind of, and it, its implications. It, I find it very forgettable. Um, number four is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I will be defensive and say I think this is better than most people will give it credit for. 
Uh, having said that, it is not anywhere near as good as any of the three other Indiana Jones movies. Um, there's Again, there's a clash of styles. You have three the three very powerful forces behind these. Uh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Harrison Ford. I think the three of them had some very different ideas about the direction they wanted to take the story in, and it shows that this is a very... Um, conciliatory effort, that it was a very compromised effort. Uh, I also think that Shia LaBeouf is horribly miscast, and I think it, it he sticks out like a sore thumb. I understand, like, looking back at the moment, like, who else would you get to play Indiana Jones and Son but Shia LaBeouf? Um, I, that's another thing, too. It sort of plays into this trend in movies in, in the late 2000s of, like, we're introducing this character. We all know who this character is. We all know what's going on, but we're going to keep it as a secret until we decide we're going to reveal it, even though you knew all along this is who this character is. Having said that, I, I think there, there's still a lot of um, good, solid filmmaking craft to this. Um, again, it does not always work, but I think there is a valiant effort here. And I think, I think overall, I think it is better than people think it is. I think the only reason people think it's worse is because it, it was not the Indiana Jones movie they were hoping for after all, almost, was it 20 years? 20 years? 30 years? 20 years. Anyway, uh, number three. This is kind of where things turn around a bit. War Horse. I think War Horse is very underrated. It is not a typical war movie. Um... You know, it's from the point of view of the horse, actually. Uh, the horse c coming in contact with... Going from his farm to coming in contact with the British Army, the German Army, uh, a, fr a nice French family, and then back to the boy who, who bought the horse to begin with before the war even started. It's very episodic. It's not what you would expect from a war movie, given that it's from the point of view of the horse, but it is... Very poetic in a sense. I think it is. It it it's sentimental, in in a way too, that I think it manages to combine Spielberg at either ends of his career in a much better way than something like the BFG does, which is very blatantly an attempt to reach back in time to 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 to, to his feelings about how he used to be as a filmmaker. Number two is War of the Worlds, which is one of two 9-11-influenced Spielberg films that come out in 2005. We'll get the other one later in this series. But um, watching War of the Worlds, it's a very solid initial 45 minutes as we see the arrival of the tripods and the initial destruction they wrought. We get into this very difficult midsection where it's a lot of it's about the tension with the Justin Chatwin as the son uh, of Tom Cruise's character and you get to the point where you're wondering come on come on Tom Cruise you know you want to leave the kid behind just take Dakota Fanning and go you know you want no more further piece of this kid because he's kind of a jerk in spite of the circumstances um, the fact that he survives till the end that he runs off into join the battle against the aliens, and then Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning arrive in Boston, and voila, he survived. That was kind of bullcrappy, to borrow a phrase. Um, and also the entire section with Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning hiding in the, the root cellar with the, the Tim Robbins crazy Colonel Kurtz character, I, I can do without all of that, but the first 45 minutes 
solid as a rock. Really gets the blood pressure going. Really gets the blood pumping. Um, and, and you know, <laughs> you almost you almost wish that it ends after forty five minutes. It's like that's a perfect that's a perfect film right there. Um, and finally, number one is the post. And maybe this is like a very kind of personal choice for me. Um, but on the other hand, you do have Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks facing off against one another in a Spielberg film. Um, I would also highlight the great performances by Bob Oderkirk and Matthew Reese in this as well. Matthew Reese plays the guy who actually stole the Pentagon Papers, um, Daniel Ellsberg. It's a brilliant cast overall when you think about David Cross, Zach Woods, Michael Stuhlberg, Carrie Coon, Alison Brie, Bradley Whitford, Bruce Greenwood, Sarah Paulson. Um, brilliant cast that only someone of Spielberg's caliber can can bring together in this um plus really well made um really sweeping uh really gets you going gets you involved the message is easy to decode obviously given when it comes out in, in sort of late 2017 early 2018 um it's not a secret why this film was made um and, and you know and ultimately doesn't really matter to me either it's just a really great solid film um and you know it doesn't have to sort of Break the break the mold, and again, it's a it's a highly personal choice, and I would understand why maybe people would not rate the post as highly as I would. But I digress. And that's the bottom twelve of the Spielberg countdown. Um, we will take a break here and uh, come right back with the middle eleven. You're listening to end credits here on CFRU. Yes, sir. Thank you, Junior. Don't call me that, please. Well, what are you doing here? I came to get you. What do you think? Oh, 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 oh,
14th century Ming dynasty. Oh, it breaks the heart. And the head. You hit the head. I'll never forgive myself. Don't worry, I'm fine. Thank God. <laughs> it's fake. See, you can tell with the cross sections. No! Now we will present in this ultimate Steven Spielberg ranking list the middle 11. So it will proceed from hmm, sort of uh, misfires of a sort to ones that just almost are among the best, but you can only have the 10 best, so they end up in the middle part of, of this list. I'll start with number 11, which is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, it's super fun. Uh, a lot of great action. Harrison Ford is great. Adding Sean Connery as Indiana Jones' dad. Great idea. It's back to Nazis. It's back to, to biblical relics. Um, but, you know, in a sense, it's also very much a carbon copy of Raiders. You could feel that... Everybody got a bit scared about how dark Temple of Doom was, and so I went back to First Principles and went back to Raiders and said, huh, what made Raiders less divisive than, than Temple of Doom? And it, it's funny, because you can sort of compare what happened with Last Jedi and, and Rise of the Skywalker to this very kind of debate. Um, also, what happens between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, it's, it's very much like... We kind of went off our creative rail with that middle chapter. We got to get back to what worked before. So um, that's the reason why Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is at 11. Number 10, kind of a, a similar predicament. You have the color purple, which is comes out in 1985. It is Steven Spielberg's message like, I am going to do adult crap now. This is me not doing like action adventure and, and kids on the run and killer sharks and killer monsters and all that. This is straight-up adult storytelling. The problem is... He wasn't ready to go there. Or he wasn't entirely ready to go there. And, and even Spielberg, Spielberg has mentioned this himself in, in the HBO doc, which is about his career. He talks about the, the scene from the book, Alice Walker's book, where um, it, it's a character... It, it, it's a scene between two characters, and they're talking about... Uh, the lead character uh, and her vagina and how her vagina works and how that works in conjunction with sex and pleasure and sex. And it's a very feminist scene. It's a very pro-sex scene. And Spielberg just did not have the... I guess the boldness and the willingness to really go there and fully invest himself in that scene, which is a shame because I I, th I think the movie works in a lot of different ways. Um, certainly the the sisterhood stuff in there and the reunion of the sisters in the end and and Whoopi Goldberg's struggles as the main character, um, and you know Oprah Winfrey's character and her struggles and in sort of uh, trying to. Um, realize her own uh individuality and her own independence there's a lot of great stuff in the movie it just spielberg just wasn't quite ready to go there um number nine is bridge of spies which feels like two different movies in a sense you have this one movie which is about um uh 
you know, the justice system and making sure everybody has access to an attorney and, you know, no matter how bad you think they are, it's about this communist spy who's taken into custody and Tom Hanks is a lawyer who ends up having to defend him and he defends him vigorously within the confines of the law and, and what is allowed in the law and it, it gets him into a certain amount of trouble, it makes him a pariah, um, it, you know, it, it makes his family concerned. Um, and then the second half of the film is the same character played by Tom Hanks is actually sent into um, East Germany to try and negotiate a, a trade between this spy played by Mark Rylance and an American uh, sp uh, spy plane pilot who's been shot down. Um, and because of that, it, it really feels like there's two different movies going on, two different short films that's like an hour and ten minutes each. Um, and, and it's a shame because uh, you really enjoy the, the stuff between Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance. They are really two two great actors getting to play off on each other and Mark Rylance, oddly enough considering his age, is, is a real discovery here because I I, think, I believe him, most of his career has been on the stage and he's become kind of a bigger movie star ever since when you think about Dunkirk or uh, Ready Player One um, and other things he's been in since Bridge of Spies number 8 is Amistad I, when I rewatched this a couple of years ago I, I found myself warming to it um Again, it's Spielberg in a phase where, like, I am going to do more adult stories, more realistic stories, more grounded stories, um, as opposed to um, The Color Purple. This feels more in his wheelhouse. It's kind of a procedural. It's law and order. Um, it's still interesting because of all the facets. It's an interesting pre-Civil War story because it's not necessarily about battles or, or people preparing to do battle or about the real the political maneuverings. It's about like the underlying tensions, the legal issues, how slavery just wasn't like a thing that ended with the Civil War, how there were little steps up to that. And of course, as we see, there are little steps that happened after that as well. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting story. Great cast too. Um, Number seven is Sugarland Express, often overlooked because it was the movie right before Jaws, but obviously there's a lot of stuff in Sugarland Express that it was an influence on Spielberg um, going forward. Um, you know, also there's, you know, broken family stuff, obviously, but, you know, there's also a message here about, um, <laughs> you know, that poverty, people in need, people who get second chances. Uh, it's fun and complex, too. Great performance by Goldie Hawn in it. Um, it. It really sets the stage well for what Spielberg would do later in his career. Also, the fact it's kind of too long. <laughs> Spielberg has that kind of tendency to sort of drag things out, too. Um, number six is Empire of the Sun, which is the film Spielberg made after The Color Purple. Uh, but before uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, it feels very much like an anti-Spielberg film when you get into it, because it's about a boy separated from his parents, but he's not on like some raucous adventure like Elliot and E.T. Um, he's being bounced from place to place. Uh, he's being starved. He's being abused. <laughs> um, I don't mean to laugh at all that, but it's like a nightmare of an adventure. Um, you, you follow him as he's a, basically a POW in this camp near the end of the war. You kind of see a bit of Stockholm Syndrome because he kind of becomes invested in the Japanese pilots who, who um, are also um, near this POW camp who are going on these kamikaze flights. 
uh, near the end of the war. Uh, it's it's really quite interesting, and of course, it's a great early performance by Mr. Christian Bale. Um, so that brings us to number five, which is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is darker. Um, and if you know the background of the film at all, it was um, during a very dark time for both Spielberg and George Lucas because they were going through divorces at the time. Um, I mean, they were also sort of at the peak of sort of their creative energies. George Lucas coming off of Return of the Jedi uh, and concluding the Star Wars trilogy. You have Spiel Spielberg coming off of E.T., which was at the time the biggest movie of all time. Maybe there was a desperate need in them to do something almost completely different, taking a pre-established character that had been so successful and taking him in completely opposite directions. It's a prequel to the Indiana Jones we meet is a bit more obsessed with fame and money uh, as opposed to, you know, the the classic line in, in Last Crusade where it belongs in a museum. Um, this indie is very much more self-centered and it, it, the story is basically about how in, the Indiana Jones in, we see in Raiders of the Lost Ark comes about. Um... You also have to overlook, I mean, a lot of blatant racism, the fact that, uh, you know, British Imperial troops are, you know, the heroes at the end when they save the day as the, um, the, uh, the cavalry, I guess. But, you know, easily, I think, that some of the best John Williams music, it's a lot of fun, that you have the minecart chase, which is spectacular, you have a lot of really great action, the final standoff on the bridge, where Indiana Jones cuts the bridge in half and everybody falls into the crocodile pit. It is a lot of fun uh, as you get to that action-packed last third. Almost enough to make you forget the racism in the first two thirds. Um, <laughs> moving on, though. Number four is AI Artificial Intelligence, which um, is the very difficult marriage between... Steven Spielberg and Stanley Kubrick and their visions. You have uh, Kubrickian pessimism meeting Spielberg optimism. And it kind of works. It kind of works. I mean, I, I think like a lot of people, I have difficulty with the prologue with the thousands of years in the future and the alien AIs who come to Earth and dig up David and they give him one more perfect day with his human mom. That is problematic uh, because Spielberg is always unwilling to go too dark, even as he's going dark. Um, but it's a real turning point for Spielberg. That, you know, when you seeing AI, you really see how the next 20 years kind of lay out for him in a lot of ways, especially through things like Minority Report, War of the Worlds, Munich. Um, it, it, it's, it's an interesting place to see where Spielberg pivots. It's a definite pivot point in his filmography, which is fascinating. Also, another, you know, great Hallie Joel Osment performance. Uh, Jude Law as his uh, sidekick, the Gigolo Joe uh, robot. A lot of fun. Um, some good stuff in here. I, I, it's definitely worth a rewatch if you haven't watched it in a while. Number three is Adventures of Tintin. Kind of weird that you would think it would rank this high, but it does. Because I, I feel it is probably the closest Spielberg has gotten to an Indiana Jones movie since 1989. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the the animation, even though it's mocap, it's not terribly distracting because Spielberg isn't really going for quote-unquote photorealism. It, there's kind of no 
um, Uncanny Valley effect, which is nice. It is kind of a nice update. I, mean, I think even if you're not familiar with Tintin, you're probably definitely familiar with the style and the look of the character when he's in 2D version. Um, and it's really updated nicely. You can also get Jamie Bell and Andy Serkis as Tintin and Haddock, and, and they are a very nice team as well. Um, you also get the, the the tonnage of experience that Andy Serkis has with mocap. You can't really do something like this without his input. He is so experienced and has really established a lot of the the standards um, that uh, or the principles of, of um, mocap acting. So uh, you really get um, great talent um, in front of and behind the camera, so to speak. Uh, also co-produced by Peter Jackson, and that's a weird team-up to have Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg working on the same thing. And of course, Peter Jackson was supposed to make a reciprocal Tintin movie that he would direct and Steven Spielberg would produce, which has yet to sadly materialize. You also get um, Edgar Wright, Joe Cornish, and um, Stephen Moffat teaming up on the script. So the creator of uh, Sherlock and the, the guy who ran... Doctor Who for years, teaming up with Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish, who did Shaun of the Dead, and have done a lot of really great and interesting things separately. Joe Cornish has done Attack the Block, Edgar Wright has done, you know, um, Baby Driver, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and all that. Running out of time! So let's talk about Duel number two. Uh, yes, technically released on TV in the United States, but it was released in movie theaters in Europe. So I'm counting it. And... Here's a... V <laughs> it's weird that this was a TV movie because there's something very cinematic about it. It is a solid, almost like 90-minute chase of this poor man who's being chased by a semi for seemingly no reason. You never find out why the semi has picked on him and why it's choosing him, who's driving the semi. Uh, there's a really difficult scene kind of in the middle of the film where... Um, the man driving the car stops at a cafe and he's kind of looking around and you hear his inner monologue talking about who is the truck driver? Is he here with me now? Where is he going? Why is he doing this to me? And it's kind of lame, but it was 1971 or two and <laughs> this is kind of like Steven Spielberg's um, calling card. So, you know, we can forgive certain things with, with the development, but that's okay. And number one, before we get into the top ten, is Catch Me If You Can. A lot of people point to Hook as Spielberg saying goodbye to childish things. I think Catch Me If You Can is him saying goodbye to childish things. You know, when you have the character of Frank Abagnale, as he's presented in the film, his obsession with getting his parents back together and living this lifestyle um, as a con artist, where he's going from doctor to lawyer to pilot... Um, all while, like, having the secret wish fulfillment of all he has to do is, like, give his father the tools to, um, reconnect with his mother, and then there will be one big happy family again, even though everybody's clearly moved on, as, uh, Frank Abagnale's been, um, off jet-setting and, and ripping off <laughs> companies, it's silly, um... It's a silly, childish mode of thinking, and, and Spielberg is really kind of blatant about that. And it's about Frank Abagnale coming to terms with that. I'm not sure if that really is Frank Abagnale's story, but that's how Steven Spielberg has interpreted it, and catch me if you can. Great Leonardo DiCaprio performance, great Tom Hanks performance. You also get early Amy Adams in there. Um, 
just a lot of fun. Great zippy 60s uh, feel, the, the John Williams score. I think it's one of his best, but I digress because this is not a John Williams recap. It's a Spielberg recap. So coming up next, we will have the top 10 list for the best of Steven Spielberg. You're listening to end credits here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Well, that was some a uh, couple of pretty big hints there, so we will kick off this final portion of our ultimate Spielberg ranking list with number 10. I put Jurassic Park at number 10. Um, depends on your age, sort of where I think Jurassic Park falls in, in the, the panacea, because I think a lot of people came of age with Jurassic Park. A lot of people who are adults now, uh, obviously, because it came out in 93, so almost 30 years ago. Um, and I think there's also a period where people came of age during Jaws, which was almost 50 years ago now. So, depending on, I think, what stage you were in your development, you either put rank Jaws very highly in the Spielberg list, or you rank Jurassic Park very highly. I put it at number 10, because... 
if there's one thing all the Jurassic Park sequels have proved, is that it was a very small needle to thread. The eye of that needle, in terms of balancing the wonder of dinosaurs and the terror of dinosaurs, because, as we all know, and I've mentioned this before on the show, the Jurassic Park films have just basically become slasher films with dinosaurs. Uh, especially that last one, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Numero nine is Minority Report. It is a great action movie. It's got a lot of really great set pieces. Um, the I think the, the, the one in the film where uh, Tom Cruise's policeman character is getting an eye transplant and the pre-crime cops come in and search this flop house where he gets the procedure done. Um, maybe one of the best Spielberg sequences ever, like just from the camera work to the pacing, to the the little triangle robot creatures that are searching the house, to the John Williams score. It is so beautifully executed. It's a great detective story. It's got, it's got some cyberpunk in there. Uh, it's got some film noir in there. Um, everything right up until the end, I think, is dandy. And I think we've discussed before on the show that Spielberg can't really mount the ending all the time. Um, number eight is Lincoln. Um, kind of unusual for a biopic, focusing on very one very small section of Abraham Lincoln's life, perhaps the most important section, um, when you think about uh, the 13th Amendment and ruling slavery illegal in the United States. Amazing, expansive cast, but I mean, it, it's ultimately nothing if you don't get Daniel Day-Lewis as Abraham Lincoln. An incredible performance, um, so grounded, um, especially so relatable too, especially when you consider um, the mythic status of Lincoln, his face is carved onto a mountain for crying out loud. So to really bring that character down to earth, make him personable, make him human, it is a remarkable achievement. And to get Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, with a script by Tony Kushner, Wow, it's um, beautiful. It's a beautiful sight. Um, number seven is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Looking back, kind of a strange follow-up to Jaws, uh, because in, in, in a very different era now, I think, you know, if a movie like Jaws were to come out and uh, Steven Spielberg were like, okay, I'm not doing Jaws 2, that would kind of be a big flashing warning sign about his own commitment, because, you know, it seems like now people deliver that big, huge hit, and they have to get right into the sequel. Not Spielberg, he went for something completely different. And you, you sort of see where his comfort levels are, um, the, the themes he really kind of wants to explore. Um, you know, one can make the point, too, that, you know, there's some, some pretty cynical stuff in Jaws, and it, that's just not there in Close Encounters. It's a more optimistic take of people, of uh, the universe. It's not a universe of monsters or, you know, scary things. It is a universe of of opportunity and education. And, you know, it, it, I think that's that's always been Spielberg's sort of wheelhouse, is um, just optimism and, and forward-thinking and forward-looking and doing better. Um, even if he says that, you know, Roy Neary wouldn't leave his family behind to go out into space. I don't know. We'll leave that there. Um, speaking of aliens, number six is Close Encounters of the... 
Number six is E.T., the extraterrestrial. I wasn't a big fan of this movie when I was a kid. I saw it on VHS, like when it came out on VHS. And this was like back in the day. It came out in 1982, and I don't think it came out on VHS until 86, 87. Four or five years between theatrical release and home video release? I don't think so. I mean, even just like ten years later with, with Titanic. Titanic came out in theaters December. I don't think it came out on... Uh, home video until like August or September the next year. Yeah, think about that. That's really quite extraordinary. Um, but yeah, it, it, uh, you know, looking back at it as an adult, though, I I I think I get into ET more. I think it really gets that wonder of being a kid. The 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 you know the issues with being a kid, especially being on the kid, you know, watching your parents get divorced, that sort of learned helplessness, it, it is, um, it's easy to sort of see why Elliot would find escape in this weird-looking alien creature, and, that, and that's, like, the I think one of the remarkable things about E.T. is that E.T. just himself looks bizarre, uh, <laughs> and that it, you, you managed, it, it, I guess it's a real lesson about, you know, Looks aren't everything, um, because it, it, it's it's a bizarre-looking creature that you do find comfort with, and, and you do see beauty in eventually. Um, but yeah, I, I've come to appreciate E.T. more and more as I've gotten older. And now for something completely different, number five, Schindler's List. It is a marathon to get through this movie. It's three hours and 15 minutes, but it is... Um, it, it, you know, it, it just really wrecks you by the end. It, it's such a remarkable journey. It goes, like, step through, step by step through this, like, horrible historical event, the Holocaust, of course, but also, you know, seeing Oscar Schindler transform from someone who's, like, this just opportunistic, money-hungry person who who's willing to profit off misery, but then to see him change and develop and, and come to terms with his own um, failings and, you know, to see him in the end talk about, you know, look to look at his suit and look at his watch and say, well, this, you know, the money I spent on this could have been another life. And, you know, at the end, it's, you know, the Jewish people or his, his, um, his accountant played by Ben Kingsley, who's like comforting him and saying like, you know, you did a lot and, um, you know, that, that should be, it should be enough. It's not obviously it was never going to be enough, but it, it you know the, the number of people that Schindler slaved was certainly more than a lot of people. It, it's an incredible story, and um, really beautifully told, heart heart wrenching too, heartbreaking in, in a lot of respects. Um, similarly, Munich number four. Um, I don't think there's ever been a Spielberg story so complex. I don't mean that as a insult him, but, but he's not a complex guy, Spielberg, or at least not, his movies usually aren't, but to look at both sides of this, and, and to look at, you know, not just the need, in, in the hands of, like, a lesser filmmaker, this would be, like, a simple revenge story about, you know, the, the Israeli response to the Munich um, Olympics and the massacre there, it would have been just about getting revenge and making them pay, and that's not what Spielberg's interested in at all. And he really makes you see both sides of it, not both not both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian thing, but between both sides of, do you get revenge, do you not get revenge? There's a great line at the end where Eric Bana confronts his handler, played by Jeffrey Rush, and, and says, you know, 
well, what was the point of all this? Everyone we killed has been replaced by worse people. And Jeffrey Rush just says to him, well, I cut my toenails every week. You know, they, why, why would I do that? They just grow back. Really kind of simply puts that into context. It, it's it's a thinking man's uh, spy movie, that's for sure. I love Munich. It, it's it's, an, it's such an incredible journey. Um, number three is Saving Private Ryan. Easily, like, the best 25 minutes of combat footage ever put to film. Uh, Tom Hanks solidifies his... Um, his life and his rep and his work as sort of Mr. America, Captain America, even, um, up, you know, great cast of up and comers like Vin Diesel and, and Jeremy Davies, uh, Matt Damon, of course, this came right off Goodwill Hunting, um, great film that really captures like the heart and soul of the, the type of people who went to war in World War II and everything they accomplished. And, um, I mean, the middle part kind of sags a bit, but you get the really visceral initial 25 minutes on the beaches of Normandy, and then the, the final battle as they protect the bridge at the end. Um, and by that point, you've gotten to know everybody uh, who is on the the squad. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, to, to go through that, and um, the, you know, the, the, the parting words of the Tom Hanks character to, to the Matt Damon character, like, you know, earn this, and the, the question of, like, did he earn it? Like, just going back home and living as good a life as possible, do you earn it? Um, no easy answers. Anyway. Number two is Raiders of the Lost Ark, and, like, number two and number one, like, you can go back and forth between, I think, what is number two and is number, what is number one, but for today... Raiders of the Lost Ark is number two. Um, it really captures the spirit and the fun of those old serials that um, that Spielberg and, and Lucas were kind of basing the character on. It's also really interesting that you know you can see a a new original character almost created out of whole cloth and then making it as seminal as like any character that's ever made it to screen, and whether that's Robin Hood or um, James Bond. You know, you you really don't hit that level very often where something just you 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 make up you make up something and it becomes a part of the culture it doesn't just come and go to for, for it to really kind of sink in and stay there and and not just um not just uh you know stand on its own but also become hugely influential you know you wouldn't get the uncharted video games with anything Indiana jones you don't get tomb raider video games you don't get the mummy movies you don't get romancing the stone either just there's there was a whole series of influences from Raiders of the Lost Ark and the mastery that that Spielberg um, brought to that movie cannot be denied mastery is also key to the number one position which is Jaws um, you know there there are movies that kind of are elevated by their own story. I think Jaws is one of those. Not only is it like a really great movie, and you can read... I mean, a lot of people have been talking about the mayor from Jaws in context of COVID-19. Um, you know, people who are just, you know, concerned about the bottom dollar and uh, making money and, uh, you know, getting getting the beaches open, so to speak. Um, so I mean, there's a new resonance to it, and I would check out an episode of Film Spotting where they talk about Jaws. They get, dig into that a lot, but also um, the mythology behind the making of Jaws is really something else. You know, when you think about Spielberg making his big uh, feature 
not his feature debut, but you know, having so much writing on this, including like his own future, goes over budget. The freaking shark never works. It, it's just it, it. The story itself is fascinating. Uh, before you even get to the story of the movie, which is also fascinating. And that is our ultimate Spielberg ranking, and we will next hear from the master this coming Christmas time with his remake of West Side Story. Where will that fall on the list? Where will number 34 fall? Will it be in list 1, list 2, list 3? We will have to wait and see. And that is it for this week's show. We hope you liked it, and if you want to listen to it again, you can find us on our website, endcreditsradioshow.com. You can download it from the Guelph Podcast channel every Friday on Podbean, or through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. And speaking of Spotify, you can also find on that streaming service the playlist of music that you hear every week on End Credits. Uh, Just go in Spotify and search for end credits on CFRU and you will hopefully find that playlist and you will see all the music um, that we have played over the last three years and a bit of the show. You can also find us on social media on Facebook at End Credits Radio Show or on Twitter at End Credits Radio. I will be back tomorrow on CFRU, Thursday at 5 p.m. for news and politics on Open Sources Guelph with Scotty Hertz. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson. Go to my news and politics site, guelphpolitico.ca. And you can read my writing about horror movies at Nightmare on Film Street at nofspodcast.com. Stay tuned for more great programming here on CFRU, 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back next Wednesday at 3 p.m. for an all-new episode of End Credits with an all-new review, and we will see you then. Mm